we're trying to do is shock the business into a new level of ambition. That's Tim Doyle, the CEO and co-founder of Eucalyptus, and this is Wild Hearts. <laughs> Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to season two of Wild Hearts. This is a podcast dedicated to sharing the real stories of founders, the passionate few taking giant leaps forward. We're here to uncover the lessons from the founders looking to change the world and the investors who back them. This podcast is brought to you by the team of Blackbird, and I'm your host, Mason Yates. Eucalyptus has taken a giant leap forward since I spoke to Tim 12 months ago. In May 2020, Eucalyptus was being built by 30 full-time people, and a little over 12 months later, the team has 85 people dreaming, building, and running digital healthcare companies. Last year, there were two telehealth businesses, one called Pilot for Men's Health and Kin for Women's Fertility. Today, there are two more, Software for Skincare and Normal for Sexual Wellness. And with a fresh round of $30 million from its latest Series B, Eucalyptus will need to hire exceptional people to launch the exciting new brands that the team is dreaming of launching shortly. As we all intimately know, the world of healthcare has changed dramatically in the last 18 months. With that in mind, I strongly recommend you go back and listen to my prior episode with Tim, if you haven't already, so that you can sort of capture where they were yesterday and what's turned out to be true today. In this episode, Tim highlights what challenges and opportunity healthcare brings, the live experiments the team is running to scale the company to more than 100 people in the next few months, the differences between allocating $8 million from its Series A last year to $30 million from closing its Series B, and the fundamental truths behind running a high-performance marketing team. Later on, I'll speak with Nick Crocker about what he finds so exceptional about Eucalyptus, what has changed in the last 12 months, what metrics he cares about, what he's learned from the team, and what future he's excited to be a part of as a board member and investor. Before we jump in, I wanted to speak directly to the founders out there who have a vivid vision of how the world should be. If you've ever heard the advice that you need a warm introduction to get investment from a VC, I'm here to tell you that's a complete and utter myth in today's world. Blackbird has a get investment section on its website, and no matter who you are, where you come from in Australia and New Zealand, I'd love to see you share an application that surfaces your vision and hunger so that we can help fuel your ambition to bring your vision to life. I read every single pitch with immense care, and I'd love to make the claim one day that the best business story of our time came through a website application. Nothing is too early. Okay, that is the end of my ramble. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Here is Tim Doyle. It's been a pretty serious 12 months in the world of healthcare. What have you seen? What's been at the front line? Yeah, I mean, it's. It, I was listening to the last time we did this as a preparation for... Could um, move. Yeah, as preparation for today. And I, it was just like, it was an incredibly different world. And I think... We were just getting stuck in. It was like it was like May, early yeah. May when we chatted. Yeah, and I think like I think people were talking about it as a, a thing that was going to be a, a short term spike in the way that we operated, rather than the long term probably forever impacts that it's that it's now had on both the kind of like society and the industry. So I, I I think I was a little bit flippant. I think like at the time as well, our business wasn't as certain about the future of healthcare as it kind of is now. And so I think I think like what I've seen at the front front of this is is a like a, I think like. My biggest kind of consideration with it is like how much it looks like the change that happened in kind of commerce over the last decade and how much that like that desire for like access on the behalf of patients. So like the desire to get like e-commerce level access to practitioners and to medications and to even their own health data. That looks a lot like what happened in e-commerce over the last 10 years. And then like the like enrichment and specialization of experiences in the healthcare space. I think like a lot of what we see as telehealth now is like the doing a video consult with your doctor. And I think that's like very V1 of what it's gonna be. And we're starting to see like the offshoots in, particularly in the US where it's like, well, it's condition specific, it's deep, it's detailed. And it's about providing like a long ongoing healthcare experience for someone rather than like a a transactional piece of care in an emergency situation, which was kind of what the early stages of COVID began to look like. And so people are actually starting to challenge like, what does a digital first healthcare system look like? And that's the really exciting thing that's kind of the next two to three years for us. So what have been, to get deeper on, on that, what have been some of the short-term challenges and, and, and long-term opportunities from those? Yeah, I think, like, I think the hardest thing is not being overly reactive, mm. right? So Just panic button. <laughs> yeah, right, because like lockdowns happen. And I think we saw this in Kin, and we probably talked about this last time, where it's just like in Kin, lockdowns happen and like the need for 
contraception, just any delivery form, like spikes hugely, right? And you're like, oh my God, the world has changed fundamentally and now this is going to be the new normal. Mm. And it's going to be about like, you know, this, this brand's going to be like a complete rocket ship where it, like, it provides this convenience. And it's like, well, actually, to be honest, going to a pharmacy is not that inconvenient. And so as soon as you get out of like the lockdown, most lockdown of lockdowns, you're like, well, actually this like step forward wasn't as big a step forward as we'd imagined. And so you go, I think like the design, I think like this also applies to how legislation changed where it's like for a while you could bill, you could publicly bill a, a telehealth consult through, through to Medicare. And like that meant that like everyone was like, oh, is the payer model completely changed forever here? And you're thinking about your technology roadmap and you're going, well, should we be responding to this? And it's a really difficult, a difficult thing when like there's all of this noise and I saw it across all of e-commerce as well. And it's like, well, what actually um, is meaningful long-term change here and what actually um, can we believe and make, and make long-term bets on? And so we kind of tried to strip back and look at like what a 10-year view of healthcare experiences was likely going to look like in a world where technology played a much bigger part than it does, you know, at day one when we deliver stuff online through healthcare and through pharmacies and et cetera. And so we started to think, well, like, obviously all of these interactions are going to create a whole, a completely different level of uh, patient record. And we can see what Google and Facebook and Apple are doing in that space. And we can say like, look, you're going to have a lot more health data. And then at the same time, this like lift in convenience is going to mean that you're going to have a lot more access to practitioners. And so the days of Googling your symptoms might go away because doctors are, instead of being a, you know, a booking app and then a visit away, they are now a text message or a call away. And so we're like, okay, that increases massively. And so you have a higher touch healthcare system and then you go so that idea of like more information and more access probably means like much more personalized care across a much longer journey and so you go well if we believe that to be true then do we believe we can solve really serious healthcare problems using that kind of frame of a uh, higher touch and higher uh, like higher access higher personalization and therefore kind of like higher touch healthcare and that's that's kind of how we've shaped out long-term thinking in response to what was a uh, a very noisy 12 months to add to that noise, there's almost this inherent friction between e-commerce and, and healthcare yeah, being yeah. convenience and safety. How do you think about that? How have you managed that over the last 12 months? Of yeah, I mean, yeah, like <laughs> it's just, I, I mean, you can't, you can't be too tempted by like, like I, 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 was, I was brought up on this world of like reduce the number of clicks to transaction. Yeah. Like, I mean, if you look at kind of what makes Koala work is like this idea, one product, one choice, very few clicks, long trial period. It's like, how do we make this thing as seamless as possible and remove any decisions for the, for the customer? And you could do that in healthcare as well, right? Like there is the opportunity to go and go, well, you know, you know what medication you want. Let's make it three clicks from search to transaction. But like you do so much damage to people by doing that. And you do it, you create, you break trust in telehealth if you try and do that. And so, and it's also a really short term way to kind of optimize your your business. And so, you, cause you give up all those things we talked about before, which is like you give up the opportunity to develop a long-term relationship. And so when we think about necessary friction, what we think about is, um, what information do we need to provide to a practitioner in order for them to make a good decision? And how do we provide that information in as a seamless way as possible? And so we want our practitioners and our doctors and our partners making as good and informed decisions as possible on behalf of the patient and then the patient to have as good information as possible when it comes to what they're gonna make in terms of a purchase decision. Having all of the surveys on the front of the consults that we do have, we've thought a lot about how do we get that information and make it as useful for both patient and practitioner in order for them to like make good long-term health decisions. And like you have to realize and you have to kind of coach into the business that without good long-term health decisions, you don't get the kind of behavioral change that makes significantly positive health outcomes. And without that change, like the business that we're trying to be is actually not possible. And so it's about kind of shifting out to the long-term wherever possible. There seems to be this element of education in there to ensure you have that stability around the customer experience. How have you thought about educating customers versus intuitively they just understand because the user design is so simple? Have you had to think through that challenge, especially with healthcare? Yeah, a lot. I think I actually, I, this is one of my main bugbears with healthcare. I think like that I, I had this kind of like personal health situation a couple of years ago where I was going through like the diagnostic process for a very complex kind of condition. And because the diagnostic process took so long, there were all of these opportunities all the way through to kind of Google what doctors had said, what symptoms were, what it was, what, you know. Talk to Google, yeah. Yeah, and what, you know, like what blood tests were saying, what reports were saying, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And like, obviously, you know, if you Google for long enough, you're inevitably gonna find out that you're gonna die mm. um, or something similar. 
And so I really do take this responsibility seriously, which is you have this opportunity by interacting in a simple way with patients to provide them with like correct information and education throughout the process. And like by lifting the accessibility of that information, what you have the opportunity to do is to allow them to make good personalized decisions much earlier off high quality health information that's not buried in either you know a doctor's scrawl or in kind of an academic publication and so mm. if you can make medical information accessible and engaging um, I think you can empower better decisions at a much earlier point and you do take away that temptation you know delve deep into the dark depths of Google and and, and you know find out what's kind of like horribly wrong with you um, and so yeah that's a that's a really serious responsibility that we that we do take but it's actually I guess like to counter what I just said it's actually really difficult to commercially justify that investment at times I, I like i really empathize with with a lot of other businesses that say like investing in content and communities because we have uh, a community in software and we have a lot of kind of content products and content that we make and it's really hard unless you're running on a really long timeline to justify continuing to like make significant investments in those areas because they don't like in a very like you know, venture capital driven investment um, return timeline. It's really hard to make an investment that you know is going to take, you know, three to five years to pay really substantially. I've always had this and we've, we've always struggled with this internally, which is like, we know that this has value, but we know the yield on that is that value is long. Mm. And so we, we struggle a little bit to kind of justify making these investments and have to force ourselves to do so. So like ideologically, it's something that's really important to us, but we've struggled with it commercially at times. And so I don't want to pretend like we're, you know, we're saints at it because we're still kind of early on the journey there. I want to put a bookmark in uh, capital allocation so that we reopen it a bit later. 24 months ago, you were thinking about starting, I think it was a pet food brand. <laughs> I mean, and then, yeah, potentially. <laughs> and then 12 months ago, you had two brands now four and soon to soon to be many more can you sort of talk about what did you believe to be true especially in the last 12 months that has remained to be true and what has been false yeah i think the thing that i quite substantially wrong oh for like for those that are kind of hearing me talk about this for the first time i think our initial pitch was that many direct-to-consumer e-commerce brands looked very similar from a marketing and technology perspective and therefore offer shared services layer of marketing and technology, you could build what looked like a modern Unilever in the e-commerce space by launching multiple brands offline. And I think what I was wrong about was that you could differentiate from a technology perspective in a world where Shopify became as powerful and as um, omnipresent as it has become and good as it has become. And so the technology differentiation in a pure direct-to-consumer e-commerce world has shrunk substantially. And then the secondary part of that is I think like, let's call it like, the millennial pink washing of branding has actually <laughs> meant that has actually meant that it's really hard to differentiate from a brand perspective as well. So I think like making nicely de designed kind of websites that flow reasonably well on Shopify is a path to you competing with every small business in that space over time. And so I was like kind of like fundamentally wrong about about that the, the defensibility of that. And so to extrapolate that forward to what we ended up actually doing. We went looking for a space, and I make this sound intentional, but it was like largely by accident, where that technology differentiation at a core platform level was still possible. And what we learned out of pilot is like, there's a lot of bespoke technology that you need to build to run a telehealth business. And so Kin utilized some of that technology. And then we started to see the, the benefits of shared infrastructure in the health space. And that meant that we could continue to build that infrastructure. And then like, I guess like as you add each module to that infrastructure, it opens up more capabilities for the brands. And so I guess the way to think about it is we've recently done a pathology integration and doing it for one brand probably doesn't stack because selling STI tests in pilot is not a particularly high margin or high uh, retention business. And so um, what you do is you develop it, you spread the value across multiple brands and you can actually build something really powerful that, that is really useful for the personalization of people's journeys over time. And so that has kind of been the seed of that. And then I think the second part of that is um, the technology talent that we were able to attract into the business was and is significantly better than um, we'd imagined we'd be able to kind of get. And I think like that's a credit. Not to me because I did none of that, but to kind of Davina, our, our head of engineering and Jenny, our head of product who have built like a culture within that org that is like generally representative of like the elite technology companies of the world. And so like in my, from my perspective, I look at that and I'm like, well, if we have that, we, that's an area we should be investing, you know, all of our resources and capital to continue to improve it. And, and that's the genesis of like the business we are now. Can you add a bit more color to the technology depth by giving us an example? 
Yeah, for sure. Did you mean there in like the platform sense or in like the... Yeah, in the platform sense, how have there been overlapping benefits yeah. by launching multiple Well, trades? we... I don't really believe in like trade secrets. And so we <laughs> we have doctor's platform, a patient platform and an admin platform that power all of the brands. They're replications of the same. Oh, they are the same infrastructure. And so being able to spin up a new brand on that same infrastructure makes the time to first consult from, you know, six months to one month. And so software has benefited from that. I think the other one is like the quiz infrastructure that sits on the front. We've just recently gone through the process of unifying those. And so you can obviously make data improvements in the way that people flow through that and the way that the information that we capture and how that feeds into a medical record but also you know ui improvements and experience improvements for the patient and so what ends up looking like you know there are whole businesses built off making nice surveys and we now have one of those in the medical space that is you know pretty powerful both from an experience perspective but from it enables us to do in terms of personalizing journey and so that's like that's kind of the example i guess great example you've just raised a pretty epic series b 30 mil versus eight mil at the last round what have been some of the differences between allocating the eight mil to what i guess you anticipate yeah i think like i the way that i think about allocating funding after a round and i realize actually that this is not common um that to think this way but I, i i kind of think in chapters where i'm like you raise a pool of money and your job is to get the business in 18 months looking or 12 months looking in the best position to then raise another pool of money to then do the same thing again And so you have an investment timeline tied to that, right? And so what you do is you front load your investments in terms of things that will take a long time to pay off. So team, new brands, uh, those type of things that allow you to then optimize for growth in the later stage of the cycle. So you can spend money on marketing in order to grow quickly in order to then be in the best position to raise the next um, round of funding. And so when you have $2 million and I I copped like an an inordinate amount of shit for saying the earn the right to exist thing. It's actually like... (laughs) It's actually become like the thing that I get made fun of most in. I might have to um, put in the intro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get made made fun of the most in in inside Eucalyptus. Our our hackathon trophy has earned the right to exist, <laughs> written in Latin on it. And so what I meant by that at the time, and what I would stand by, is that when you have sh- relatively short capital cycles to return and kind of go back to investors with something more impressive than you went in with, you have to limit your ambition. And so you have to build things that are representative of traction and what you may become one day but you can never really build what you want to become and so like i guess like to to borrow from the most used example of them all i think like it's the books for amazon type situation where you have to take the first level of ambition and be willing to limit your scope to that and so allocation one is that allocation two i think like is in terms of the eight million dollars the way that we thought about that is we, we were like Let's prove that we can be a multi-brand, a multi-brand organization built off one piece of infrastructure. And so with more time and more space, we were able to unify our platform and also invest in the engineering and product talent to power us from one brand to multiple brands and then and then show that we could launch brands quickly off that platform and that we could scale those brands. And so the eucalyptus that went into the series B was one that said, when we raised the series A, we um, had the ambition to build multiple brands and start to scale those brands. You can now see Pilot as a stable, fast-growing business. You can see Skin as a, uh, a stable, fast-growing business. And you can see software as a really quick to launch, really quick to scale business as well. So we have a repeatable formula for here. And you as an investor should feel safe that given you know another $15 million into that formula, that... Um, you'll see good returns for that. And that's definitely what we took in. And then the second part, obviously, that's only half the $30 million. The second part of that is we now want to begin to show our ambitions for a globally, I guess, a globally powerful and kind of uh, generational business. And so you start to say things like, but given this platform and where we are now and the relationship we have with these cars, we solve largely transactional short-term health conditions at the moment, but we're pretty good at figuring out how to engage with people on their health. And so we can start to think about what it would mean to add depth from a platform perspective, but also from a relationship with customer perspective. And so, you know, ED is a precursor to diabetes for a lot of people in Australia and, and diabetes is the one of the biggest healthcare problems in the Western world. And so the challenge there is, can we spend another pool of capital, the infrastructure for treatment of and like behavioral management of patients that would otherwise end up in hospital suffering from suffering from the the effects of diabetes and so we're we're a much more ambitious long-term company and so allocating that 30 million dollars is about going like well how do i front load as many of those bets as possible because i want to give the talent that sits within the organization the maximum amount of time to yield on that effort and so for those that follow the business we have like 40 job ads up at the moment and like 
that feels unsustainable. And like, I feel like if that were true for the next 12 months, we would, we would potentially be in a bit of problems. But what we're trying to do is shock the business into a new, a new level of ambition. And so bring in the people as early as possible, give them the maximum of time to settle and build that next layer of infrastructure to power the next layer of work. And then you'd imagine that we go back to capital markets in, in 18 months time and say, hey, not only are we very effective at deploying growth capital into our existing engines, but when we build new capabilities, we not only um, enrich the value of those engines, but we create longer term, more ambitious, more defensible businesses and brands on top of that. And we can continue to do that as well. So give us, you know, $100 million to deploy in taking what are our more ambitious projects and making them potentially international or deeper into the health stack or whatever it might be in 18 months time. Wow. This is a big time pack. The, <clears throat> I thought your series B pitch was epic. And one of the things that I really liked about it was your ability to, to transition between high level vision and the detail of the next steps. And part one was about, you, you, you just said to limit your ambition. And then almost part three is to how can we really increase our ambition? Can you just sort of clarify your thinking around ambition, especially when thinking about allocating capital and building a story around the business? Yeah, for sure. I guess this is one of the things I didn't really understand about venture capital before I had, you know, run a venture capital backed business is I always thought that venture capital ignored a lot of really good businesses for a lot of specky bullshit. And why I thought that, and I guess like what I didn't understand at the time and what a lot of early stage founders I'd imagine don't understand is that like, once you get on the venture capital train, you kind of have to swing for the fences in order to return the amount of time and effort and capital that needs to go into that initial investment. And so you have to make a conscious decision at some point. And I think you kind of make it in most cases around the series A, which is like, are we a swing for the fences generational company? And therefore, are we going to fund ourselves in that way? Or are we a great medium to large business that can survive without that capital and grow to a healthy point and, you know, seek an exit and, and, and you know, build, build like generational wealth for the people that are involved. And I think we made that decision when we realized that like what we were onto was a generational shift in like one of the largest industries um, globally. And so once we had made that in our minds that we were like, we're in this for the to the end journey we you have to then think about well how do we level up to be globally relevant in this space over 50 to 100 years and so when you think about that you start to think about like well what are the underlying problems that we can solve that are industry-wide here or sector-wide here and you start to like think about resourcing for those and building for those but at the same time as doing that you have to be practical about where you are and what proof points you'll need to i don't think it's enough you know we're going to change healthcare because that's you know that's on the front of every pitch deck that you ever see i think it's much more important to be able to say like hey we think the future looks like this in 50 years um and therefore we think that in one year's time we can look like this and that is the necessary next step and then it's about taking 51 year steps from in order to to reach a point that seems practical that both at the same time seems like wildly different to where the world is today but is also practical enough that you feel like you're on a journey there from very early on mm. the second one i wanted to dive a bit deeper into was your idea around front-loading hiring and effectively shocking the organization what's that been like i guess it's an it's a live experiment <laughs> right i yeah. i i don't know i guess like i think that companies don't change fast enough when they raise large pools of capital. I think the, the rewards for being an efficient capital allocator that get you to a series A or a series B aren't, they, those behaviors don't get rewarded in the six months after that. If we got to 12 months from now and we continued at our current burn rate and we didn't invest hugely in infrastructure and team, what we would have is we would have a bigger business than we're going to have, but we have a business that has less future room for growth and so it would have like it would be like 80 percent of its way to its maximum capacity and it would probably be burning less money and it'd be like quite close to profitability and everyone would be like this is a pretty good business but you can see just over the horizon is that there's no like future runway for really exciting growth and so by investing now in like alexi has this great train tracks analogy but it's like 
by investing now in like the train tracks that are way, way, when you get to them, you have a lot more time to utilize them and, and ways to utilize them. And so it's been, it's been hard shocking the organization, I guess, in terms of a lot of people feel like they're distracted into the recruitment world. And like, you know, you feel like is the, is the bar raising or are we like kind of, you know, hiring because we want to hire fast and all these questions are really tough to answer and we won't know the answer to them until um, six months at least from now. I just feel that like if you don't maximize the amount of time that your organization is fully stocked and ready to work on the problem that you're trying to solve at the hardest level, then you probably rob yourself of the chance to solve that problem by the time you next need to go back out to market. Mm. And so that's a dangerous spot to be in. How have you set up the organization to effectively absorb the shock? I guess what we have done is we have front loaded the like building of management infrastructure and like time will tell whether that's correct but like i learned a lot from i watched the our engineering team do it maybe six months ago where they they restructured to what felt like a two management heavy org but i've watched them then hire into that management heavy org and i've watched them kind of bring in people a lot simpler into a structure that looks like it's set up for 12 months from now and so we've kind of elevated key people in the organization to roles that they're probably not quite ready for in order to allow them to have the time to kind of build the structures around them when all these people come in and they feel like the structure is mature even if the people in the roles necessarily not aren't necessarily quite there yet for like what is 12 months from now how do you balance i guess it comes down to the the hungry and the proven in that case you've got a bunch of hungry people but building something where the turnaround is potentially 12 to 18 months there's not a lot of time to upgrade how do you sort of train or take care or make it comfortable for them to not succeed all the time and Mm. continue to thrive yeah i think it's it's like again live experiment so i'm not sure like this can like potentially like this, this shouldn't be considered wisdom but kind of just general thoughts on what might happen i think how do i think about this i think like environmentally you want what I've like liked about an organization to date is that a lot of these people who are like hungry and high potential and growing really quickly are surrounded by others in the same position. And so there isn't like a disparity of we, you know, some people are really sophisticated in a long way and experienced on that journey and others are just starting out. It's like, well, we're all kind of like falling through this together. And so when things go wrong, we all have the opportunity to kind of reflect on those and the whole organization learns with that rather than um, us having some functions that are, you know, run in a really sophisticated and and mature way and others that are kind of learning that organization is all learning um, more or less at the same pace, which I think is, is, is powerful. I think the hard thing about that is like the temptation with more capital is to like really go to you know the top of the field in places that you don't know and pay you know pay up for talent that that represents that and i'm like struggling with it at the moment as to whether or not what has really worked for us so far is the way forward and whether or not there is a time to start de-risking some of our talent bets by bringing in you know people with a track record of success even though at an organizational level i know that the trade-off there is that like we don't necessarily get the same incredible growth curve that we get out of some of our people that have come in earlier. Mm. Um, and that balance is really difficult. And I actually don't know where it sits. Yeah, I mean, it seems like one of the hardest questions a scaling company can face. Yeah, yeah. The I think you're now at 70 people, but I mean, you've been hiring like I think crazy. like so. 85. <laughs> yeah. That was from like like within the last month, so 15 Yeah, people. we probably had yeah. six people start on Tuesday. Wow. What have been some of the key lessons you've learned in hiring now 85 people um what are like what are the key lessons there i think attracting developing oh yeah yeah okay so on attracting i think the the most important thing in terms of attracting talent is the nodes of like the people in your organization that become nodes for recruitment and so like you live and die by the promises that you make to your early stage employees and whether you keep those promises. And so the first tranche of five to seven really amazing people that come in, if you tell them that you're going to do something for them in terms of development, in terms of opportunity, in terms of like allowing them to do their best work and you don't deliver on that, then I think the talent well largely poisons. Whereas if you do deliver on those promises and those promises aren't about like, hey, you're going to be compensated in this way or like, hey, you know, you're going to get this much equity or whatever. It's like, you know, we will give you the tools to succeed and stay out of your way. If you make that promise and you keep it, then those people will become the ways that you recruit. And so, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's highly unlikely that someone from Atlassian is going to hear this and <laughs> come back at me. But like, we have a lot of ex-Atlassian um, staff. And the reason that we do, I, I mean, I think you're probably in a better position to just ask them. But I think the reason that we do is because people who made the big gamble to come to a 
unproven startup where the roof leaked you know, pre-Series A under a promise of what opportunities they might have. And then I've had those opportunities and now look back and go, holy shit, I've got a lot of responsibility now and I feel quite fulfilled on this journey. They're willing to tell other people with high conviction that that's, they, you know, they're willing to be role models and kind of, and kind of, op- kind of examples for people that are going to want to come on that journey as well. And so like, I think like a lot of people talk about like employer branding in a marketing sense. And I just think actually it's a customer experience problem and your customers are your first 10 employees in that sense. And then they become the evangelists and it's the evangelists that matter in a small recruitment market where technical talent is really hard to get. And so from a talent acquisition perspective, that to me is like the key principle is like uh, customer experience for your first time. They're going to really like, they're going to hear this and really think it was weird that I described <laughs> them as customers. But, but I, I, I think that's, that's true. the next hackathon um, award. Yeah. And then I think, the, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, maybe. And then I think on the question of development, I, I think these two things are tied together, right? Is that like allow people to make you feel uncomfortable by how fast they grow and how fast they change the organization. Like I think, one of the things about being an, one of the things about being a founder of a company is that you realize how much better people in your org are at most things than you are very quickly and you go holy shit if this person ran this process rather than me running this process we would be way better at this process mm. and your ability to give those things off and be low ego about them and allow them to take over those things and then you kind of guide where you can and be a sounding board where you can and like provide feedback where you can that is like the key to development in my mind. So exposing them to the challenges and then being there to support when things go well and when things don't and knowing when to not be the single throat to choke yourself in the in like the in the kind of decision making system. And that, that to me feels like how development kind of works. And we've got like reasonably high retention in that sense. And then I think like the one that you can't also ignore is that like compensation is quite important. And I think great people want to see their kind of compensation developing in line with their responsibility. And I think being like one of the things I really struggle with and have historically kind of struggled with as being an early employee and then a founder is that like um, the waiting, the waiting gap between like the ownership percentage of the founder and the ownership percentage of like someone who's an early employee, who's a big contributor is so enormous, right? The gap is so enormous. And so like trying to make it feel like, uh, I just think like, pushing yourself to not be greedy with those employee early employees in terms of their options in terms of their is so so important because like that's how you know that's how they feel empowered to be a contributor to the company and that's how they feel empowered as like when you you know when you say things like you know act like an owner you need to back that up and i think that's only getting more and more true so then when like in in the scenario that you're in right now how are you like the depth of insight you need into what someone's going to be performing around the job for the next six to 12 months sort of has these embedded promises with that. How have you sort of handed over the reins to people inside your team to make sure that they are giving the correct promises and ensuring that they can hold them? Yeah, that's really, but they like, they, you know, they've seen it, right? Like they have seen, they like, they shaped what the promises are and they shaped the delivery of those promises. And so like, I don't know how to make promises about what going from a mid-level engineer to a senior engineer in an organization is gonna look like, I have no clue. But I can watch, you know, Davina and Jenny create stuff that allow that to be true. And I can, you know, sense check them by going, is this the feeling that you had when you came here? Is this like the reason that you did this? You know, like that's, that's about all I can really do in that sense to provide that. But also, you know, in the, in the, in the broader org and like in the more like areas that I have a bit more kind of tighter rain on i think it's like it's about it's about kind of showing people that the journey that they're starting on is not dissimilar to people who are now significant i think like people come into an organization and they see say um a head of growth or a head of acquisition and they go oh that person is like you know incredibly talented and incredibly hardworking and and like it's they, they don't see the journey that that person's been on prior to them being in that role so i think like reminding people about you know the successes and failures of key people in your organization along the journey is quite important to showing how they got to where they they are and how you know you can replicate that yeah i think you've just highlighted the the beauty and the curse of the first 10 20 people and how important those highs are because it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah one thing i like didn't see you know how like people people hold like kind of koala's marketing to be quite a, a big deal and like one thing i didn't like 
un, like quite understand potentially going in is that like people would often like measure with stuff we did internally at eucalyptus against like that standard and like i think last time we spoke on this podcast it was we talked about this but like we did so much dumb and bad shit i know people only remember the wins and so <laughs> in that world in that world like you almost set like an unachievable bar for the stuff that you then make internally at a later date and so like being able to like you know celebrate and point out that like you know things aren't always um the best of their output then that helps with that as well Well, let's talk about marketing what has it been like growing four brands i think more difficult than i imagined in a lot of ways i think you know what we alluded to earlier with the initial thesis for the company not necessarily stacking up over the long term i think this is true in a marketing sense because like modern marketing is about being able to produce enough content to feed very hungry content engines and so i think we also talked about this last time but like our philosophy on marketing is that like if you produce enough stuff in enough channels often enough then and you lower the cost of doing that then the best stuff will outperform the average stuff by like a thousand x and that will be how you grow your brands is like enough shots on goal will produce amazing goals occasionally and those amazing goals are what will grow the brand and so doing that across four brands is hard there is so many necessary pieces of infrastructure and like pieces of small work that need to be done to power those brands and so it's quite uncomfortable to think you might need 10 designers or 15 designers or 10 video people over over a short period of time in order to make the brands run effectively because that feels fat. And one of the really hard things about running a, a marketing and media business is that like, it's really, really easy to spend dollars on Facebook. It's really, really easy to spend dollars on Google. But like those have diminishing returns over time. And like when you compare an extra dollar into Facebook to an extra piece of headcount in your team, it's much more difficult to allocate that into headcount and and make sure that that's done properly. And I think I've struggled a little bit at times with like making sure that we're producing really great work and not just work that, that grows the brands because we know how to do that. And so, yeah, it's been more difficult than I'd imagined. And what do you think the benefits are to having a house of brands? Uh, I like there's so many learning benefits that you get from it. So there, there's two types of benefits. There's like learning benefits in terms of in terms of you see things that work in one brand. Like it's like this is classic creative agency stuff, right? Whereas like you see things that work in one brand and then you learn how those things might work in another brand. And I think um, we've done that so much in terms of experimentation around what we do with landing pages and content and creative formats and things like that. And like I definitely see the benefits of that every day. The second benefit is that like brands grow non-linearly. And so what happens when you're a D2C, a D2C business that's venture backed and single offering is that like, I think like one of the things that it like makes great software businesses great is they have this like, because they have so much retention, they have like this like exponential um, growth curve when it goes right. And like consumer brands don't have that. Like they mostly grow um, in the best case linearly, but like likely non-linearly where like they will launch a product, it will do better than expected. They will increase their growth rate. You know, the product cycle will start to fall flat and that will, you know, flatten the growth rate for a while. Or like, you know, a product will become mature and that will be um, enough for that product for a while. And so in a, in a venture-backed environment, you can't exactly have a quiet quarter in your, in your single brand environment. But like when you have four brands and you know that releases are going to happen across those four brands throughout the year, by being able to allocate capital flexibly in that environment, you can back your winners when they're really winning. And I think like we're having some great wins in some of our brands at the moment and others are quieter, but... What that means as a portfolio is that we're able to grow pretty consistently and often like much faster than um, any of our individual brands can kind of handle over a long period because we can move money around between them, which is a really nice position to be in. That is a very nice position to be in. And sort of rewinding back to the beginning of this conversation with COVID, how has the world of marketing changed in light of COVID? Oh, it's not even bloody COVID. It's 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 Apple fighting Facebook. I mean, COVID, everyone's an e-commerce company now, right? Yeah. So if you're out there and you're a performance marketer and your salary is the same as it was 12 months, go knocking on some doors because uh, <laughs> the market the market is not like that. Yeah, like, I mean, the, the desire for like digital marketing talent has gone through the roof and the cost of digital media has gone through the roof. So Facebook CPMs uh, cost per thousand impressions, like the general measure for how expensive inventory is. They're up, you know, 100% in the year, maybe 70 to 100% in the year, which is wild, right? It makes mm. a whole lot of businesses on, and it's more competitive. And so, but there are more people shopping online. So you're in a more competitive ad market, trying to win more difficult attention with greater rewards at the end of the day. And so you having to be, to cross your T's and dot your I's and, and how you perform is really, really important and really, really difficult. So it's a brutal environment. And I think that the losers in that sense are like, it's really, really hard to start a small digital business now. Like, just like, it's too competitive. It's like people viewed, 
the early 2010s as a gold mine to start an e-commerce business you could start like you know you could sell socks on the internet and there was every chance you're a 50 million dollar business in five years time that's not the case anymore and it's way more competitive and way more difficult and people often point to this like idea of like one great piece of like dollar shave club did a huge amount of damage to um to the way that people think about online marketing because they had one video that was enormously successful and like that drove the brand to a billion dollar acquisition plus obviously a whole lot of other work but that was really important to it whereas now you're like constant need for content constant need for refreshing constant need for new channels for new ad uh, mixes and then at the same time to kind of flip mode attribution has been completely broken and so i, I kind of like this to be fair but um what's happened is like tracking of conversions everyone Facebook and Google's great achievement of the last five years was like making digital advertising so easy. Like you just you just gave them money and the occasional ad and some data and they told you how many things you sold. And it was like, this is brilliant. This is the most fun and simple system to play in in the world. And now that tracking has like largely been broken, more cookie-based tracking has largely been, that attribution is a lot more guesswork and it's wrong and it's difficult. And so you're having to think about investment but much more on like much higher funnel metrics and much more difficult attribution systems and so like my view is that like volatility equals opportunity but it means that you have to be paying really close attention to your blended metrics to um to your high funnel metrics and like to have a lot of trust that like really good creative will perform over time and like it's just it's a really different difficult environment and i can see why a lot of my kind of like friends and contemporaries in the space are struggling because it's it's really hard to to work out what's going on and things are changing really consistently there are a lot of d2c brands as you said everyone's now an e-commerce company spending heaps of money what's the difference between a poor performing marketing team and a and a strong performing team uh i mean i think there are two paths okay okay so there's like one fundamental truth which is to be a great marketing team you have to get i guess like outsized returns from investment in a channel right and so you there's lots of paths to do that you can be you can be whichever of the Jenners has the skincare brand or you could be uh, actually the better example is you could be Gwyneth Paltrow with Goop right and you can like be so good at monetizing your own audience by resonating so tightly with them and being so trusted in them that you get huge outsized returns for your investment in that space and you make a billion dollar company. Or you can be the world's best affiliate marketing company and you can be so good at getting your affiliate links out into the world in the right audiences that you generate huge outsized returns compared to the market in that channel. Or you can be so good at like big brand storytelling that when you make a big creative TVC like Nike, your return on that media spot and those media and those creative is so big that you can continue to justify investing in those crazy expensive ads, right? And so fundamentally, if you're creating a marketing team, you need outsized returns in one mechanism. And then the more mechanisms you have, the more likely you are to be successful over time, right? So like we are good at performance creative and buying like cheap media inventory across channels and we leverage that to grow an advertising based engine. You can also be like Canva or Safety Culture or similar SEO driven businesses and be so good at SEO that like that's your thing, right? And they're a great marketing team for that reason. But if you don't have one mechanism, then you're really, really gonna struggle. And if your mechanism is to replicate other brands in a similar space, do the same thing and do the creative in the same way, you're really gonna struggle because your competitive advantage erodes so quickly because someone else will see that you're doing that and replicate you. And so defensible return on investment based approaches to a channel where you outperform consistently is like the crux of all marketing. And there's so many flavors to that. And like people get in the dumbest arguments about like, you know, community-based brand building versus like performance marketing versus like offline media shit. And it's like, this is so fucking dumb because it's all the same thing. It's all, can I get outsized returns in a channel over time? And like, you need to run a system to do that. And like, no way of doing that is better than the other. Cause like, you know how I hate the idea of organic growth mm. um, or product led growth even, right? It's like, it's like, it's really cool because if you can pull it off, you're amazing because what you're doing is you're investing in engineering talent to build a thing which people then talk about to drive your return on investment and your channel is your product and that's fucking cool because you're great. But don't pretend you didn't invest in those engineers because like that's dumb. No growth is free. Like you just have to have a channel and if you're really good at that channel or that thing, then that is how you create your returns over time. But like everyone's playing in the same playing field basically and there's no one that's better than the other. 
Mic drop. <laughs> that could be my whole rant. <laughs> oh man, I would love to speak to you for another hour, but I can't. And sort of in ending, like you are going to be facing a, a series of hairy challenges and problems in healthcare. Who should be listening to this that you need to try and find? Oh, I mean, so many, so many things. I think like it's, you're right about us having increasingly hairy healthcare challenges. And I think, you know, like smart people working on hard problems has kind of been the approach so far. But I think um, if we now have a platform where like we have the combination of like platform, capital and ambition, where I think the hardest problems in healthcare are ahead of us. And I think if you're the type of person that A is interested in that um, and can provide, you know, either generalist or specialist skill in order to help us on that journey, then there are so many things that, that, that are open to be done at Eucalyptus. And like, I think anything from like, how do you handle, you know, medication delivery in a way that like drives up adherence? How do you do diagnostics based on pathology and quiz answers in order to best deliver patient outcomes? How do you build, you know, marketing campaigns that grow acceptance of telehealth across, you know, different demographic groups that might not be as engaged as, you know, relatively young people are. Uh, now like there is so many opportunities and if you're listening to this thinking like oh that sounds like a you know a problem set i want to get involved with i think like the message would be reach out and the most exciting and ambitious things are ahead of us still i think the next two years will be about that and we'd kind of love to hear from you even if the the perfect fit job ad isn't on our website right now i think you know message me and and we can try and find a way to make it work beautiful how should they message you i think i'll leave like the um jobs board in in the yeah the, show notes. the jobs board's always good i think you can message team at eucalyptus.vc as a as a kind of starting point also just like message me on linkedin um pretty easy way to get to me as well beautiful thank you tim thanks mason and now it's time to chat with nick crocker a blackbird partner and a board member at eucalyptus we are investing in an Australian-only brand engine that builds and runs digital consumer brands, which is like in the context of Blackbird's portfolio, an incredibly rare event. What do you love about Uke and what has remained true since the beginning? Well, hello, Mason. Thank you very much for having me on the pod. <laughs> it's great to be back. It's great to be the It's great to have you back. It's great to be the first Blackbird partner invited back as well. Let me let me know that that there's a favoritism there that I just want to acknowledge and 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 thank you for. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start by pulling you up on something. So Eucalyptus <laughs> is a healthcare company, and I say that with much greater confidence now than I did at the previous round because at the previous round I think there was still lots of pathways that were available to us. But what I've really seen from the team over the last 12 to 18 months is just an intense doubling down on the opportunity that is healthcare in Australia and a real clarity on that vision. So it's not a brand engine, it's a healthcare company. So what do I love? I think the thing that I love the most about Eucalyptus is the team. And that is a very cliched thing for a VC to say, but there was a moment in this funding process and, and in any, any funding process, when you're doing a follow-on round, most of the time when you're working with the company, you've got your, your board member hat on. So you're just thinking what is in the best interests of the company and the company shareholders. And then at the funding round, you have to put your other hat on, which is what is in Blackbird's best interest and what does Blackbird want to do at this point? So I had to kind of make up my mind what I wanted to do in this round. And at Tim's urging, actually, I went and spent half a day with the eucalyptus team and i met i met probably a third of the team and at the end of that day tim said how did you go today and i said i think i texted back something like i want to invest 10 million dollars in you <laughs> and you know i think for the first maybe year and a half of the company primarily my relationship had been with tim alexi benny and charlie but now seeing the unbelievable talent eucalyptus Jenny in product, Davina in engineering, Neve at software, Nicole at kin, Lucy at normal. It's just mind blowing. And, uh, you know, obviously there are lots, lots more people that are wonderful, but, you know, I just called out the heads of product and the heads of brand there. And it's just awesome. They're all founders. They're all, they're all, they're all people that you'd fund as founders themselves in terms of their, their quality and their ambition. To, so to have them all in a single company is really special. And 
And so that was the moment for me. So it's not, I'm not just saying, oh, team, team's so important, which anyone can say, like, I, I, I do mean it in this case. And there are, there are specific people that I think about when I think about why I want to keep investing in this team. So you pulled me up on the fact that it's a healthcare company, not a, not a consumer brand company. You've touched on what you love and that's the team. Can you pull on that thread a bit more? What else do you love? Well, the execution is pretty spectacular. You know, there's a degree of difficulty in the eucalyptus business where it's multi-brand in, in a difficult industry where you've got multiple components. You've got the D to C component. You've got the pharmaceutical component. You've got the logistics component. You've got multiple products that are within each brand. You've got the resource allocation challenge between each of the brands. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a reasonably complex business to, to run but the team just doesn't make that many mistakes <laughs> and they've just executed superbly well to this point. And, you know, they've grown revenue at a, at a rate that's, I don't want to say unprecedented, but certainly close to unprecedented. And, and that just speaks to their ability to execute. It's, it is, I, I'm not exaggerating when I say it's stunning to, to watch. How much of the business complexity did you underestimate at especially the seed round, but the Series A in particular? I, I knew by the Series A, I knew the complexity was there. At the seed round, I had no idea because at the seed round, it could, they, the, the, the pitch was... The pitch was healthcare adjacent. There were there were a lot of... I would have... I think the pitch was closer to, you know, there were wellness brands in the original pitch. And the deeper that we've got into this business, the more we've got to understand our customers, the more that we've seen the biggest opportunity here is, is health. So at the beginning, I had no guarantee that we would end, end up wanting to go as deep into healthcare as we are going to go. And that will require a level of complexity because you're dealing with people's lives. And that's a huge responsibility. And, and getting that right and delivering extraordinary customer experiences with speed and convenience takes a lot of work on the back end to get right. I think it's important to highlight, talk about, you, you sort of talked about it there, but pull back the curtains on the ambiguity of the seed round and what exactly you were investing in, what was unknown. Everything. It was, <laughs> I was just investing in the four founders. It was, it was, cause there, it was, a, it, it, there, it was a brand engine. Like you said before, which is no longer true, but at that point it was a brand engine. And so I had no guarantee that, you know, the joke for me always was I didn't want them to build a pram company, but Tim had always been intrigued by prams <laughs> as a product vertical, you know, super high propensity to pay, super expensive, pretty opaque market. There were just a lot of opportunities to innovate there. And for a long time, I was like, look, I might have invested in, I don't want to invest in a pram company, but I might have, and I'm going to just trust that Tim will make the right decision. And it doesn't matter what I, what I like or what I think I'm investing in, in his judgment, not mine. So we may yet do a pram company. I'm not saying we won't, but certainly it could have been one of the brands that, that the team launched. And I just think through, through the discovery process of launching Pilot and Kin, we just opened ourselves up into a very, very big and meaningful world of, of helping people live healthier lives. What did you need to believe at the Series A? And what have you noticed since then on those beliefs? Eucalyptus is a, is a growth story. So I had to continue to see that incredible growth as we got to bigger and bigger scale and that did play. I don't think this round would have come together in this in the way it did had they grown half as fast. So th this is this is a growth story, like a really remarkable growth story. But that's not promised or given, right? You have to keep every day waking up and growing ten percent month on month in your first month is very different from growing ten percent month on month in your twenty fourth month. And and so to keep getting up and taking on that challenge and and defeating it over and over again is pretty remarkable and almost never happens. So the growth story I had to be, I had to be right about, and that's played out really well. I could never have predicted COVID and the acceleration that we would have seen around telehealth. Telehealth went from being something that people weren't paying attention to, to something that people suddenly felt was inevitable. 
And so I think that was a completely unknown unknown at the time that we did the round and one that played into the company's hands. You didn't watch the Bill Gates TED Talk. What happened on the Bill Gates TED Talk? Oh, come on, man. He, he warns the world about COVID. <laughs> oh, about the, how un, unready for a pandemic we are. Yeah, exactly. What are some of the, the metrics that you needed to see change? Was it just growth? Yeah, the other, the other really big one is as you scale, what everyone believes about direct-to-consumer businesses is that the cost of customer acquisition just goes up. And as we've scaled at Eucalyptus, the cost of customer acquisition has been flat or declining. And again, there's no guarantee that that would have been the case. And what goes into that is, you know, the secret weapon, I think, of Eucalyptus versus most other companies is the growth team that they've assembled. And it's not just people buying ads, it's a growth engineering team. So it's the it's it's a resource allocation team in a really complex resource allocation problem space. So the way that team runs is pretty mind-blowing. I think it will become more and more popular to have a growth engineering team in this high growth business. But that was something that Tim is known for and so it's been surprising how good it has been but not a complete surprise that the company would be good at it what have been some of the biggest decisions you've made as a board member and if only share what you can hashtag it's a good question I i would love to know how the founders would answer that honestly i have a really good relationship with all the founders and now increasingly a direct relationship with members of the team. So that's been really helpful. I can't think of, the honest answer is I can't think of anything I've done right now that's made a huge difference. But I do think that because of the quality of the relationships that I've built and the level of communication that I have with the team, I'm able to be a pretty high context contributor to the big decision-making, but it would be a lie to say that I was somehow, I've been, a, I've been a great partner to the business, but I don't think that necessarily is showing up executionally or operationally. What have you learned from the Eucalyptus team? I've learned a lot and there's lots of small examples, but I think one example is in this job, occasionally you come across people that completely reset your expectation for how a particular role should be done. And so one of those people at the team is Alexi and he's reset my expectation for the impact that an operational leader can have on an early stage company. And Tim and I spoke a lot about it in the early days about how important that was and whether that was the right emphasis to have. And 110% it was. And Alexi's attention to detail and focus on getting all the small things right is so valuable to that business. And it's reset my model for what an operational partner to an early stage business should be. And it's it's not something that I think people talk about a lot. They talk about the visionary founder in the early days, but visionary founders are most impactful when they're partnered with an operational psychopath and i mean that in the positive sense (laughs) of psychopath someone who is just completely driven completely across everything fearless in throwing themselves into unknown dense difficult to understand areas and then someone you can trust to really get to the bottom of things and so i've learned a lot from alexi he, he's really changed the way I think about how early stage startups should be constructed. And look, there's lots more examples, but that's one that stands out. What did you see that others didn't when you first invested? I don't know if I saw things differently, but I had complete and utter conviction in Tim. Like I didn't spend a single minute doubting that he would go and do something special. That felt obvious to me. And I guess all I could say is maybe it didn't look as obvious to other people, but I'd had the benefit of getting to know him over two years outside of the fundraising process and seeing the way he operated, seeing the way he thought. And so I'd built a a data set on the kind of person that he was. And so it was just a matter of, I guess, taking the leap that Blackbird, which had been so successful in building uh, relationships with founders, building global companies focused on SaaS could also build a great relationship with a founder 
focusing on D2C with an Australian focus. And I just think I was just a big timber lever and I didn't have to think too hard to do the investment. It was like, I feel like, you know, the point of my job is to find people like Tim and fund them. And it just felt that straightforward and that easy. And that's a rare feeling. What do you think is unclear today? What are the unknowns that the next time I get you on will either prove or disprove? Great question. I think the really interesting thing is now that we've doubled down on healthcare, we're going to start taking on some problems with greater complexity. So in the Kin product, for example, women are subscribing to the pill and they're getting it, getting it. And so it's a known, known quantity, known transaction. And so it's about convenience, speed, logistics, but it's, it's, it's known. As we move into more complex healthcare, there are a whole bunch of other uh, factors that come into it that make those problems more difficult to solve. And we got to go up another level if we're going to really help people that have more complex and more difficult to solve healthcare problems. I I wish I could speak about the roadmap a little bit more openly, but we're going to get deeper into healthcare. We're going to help people solve really meaningful problems in their life. And we're going to require even greater capacity to do that. And we've got the building blocks in place, but now we've got to go and execute and see if we can do it. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. We would be eternally grateful if you could help service this episode by subscribing, rating, or reviewing this episode. I'll leave the jobs board down in the show notes and I will see you in a month. <laughs>